Welcome to the podcast, Eavesdropping on Arthurians, a podcast that records some of the world's top Arthurians chatting about Arthurian texts. Imagine you're at an Arthurian conference, and after a day of listening to papers on all things Arthurian, you've all gone to the pub. So, order a pint of ale, pull up a stool, and settle in to listen to two scholars talk about their favorite books. Matthew Roby is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Iceland, studying sexual consent in Old Norse Icelandic romances. He did a translation of the Merlinusbau for the new anthology of Arthurian literature being published by Broadview Press. Welcome to the podcast. It's been years since I've seen you and it's a, it, I'm really looking forward to chatting to you today. Yes, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Okay, so we're talking today about the Merlinu Spau, which is not often taught, and you you suggested it to me as a really interesting uh, rewriting um, or Icelandic translation of Geoffrey of Monmouth. Um, can you set the context a bit? Can you tell us about when it was written and what you know what manuscripts it's in and so on? Yeah, of course. So um, the original. A Latin version of the text that it's based on uh, is uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth's Historia Regum Britanniae, um, and that contains within it uh, a sort of text within a text, the Prophetiae Merlini, uh, and that was written, as you know, by Geoffrey of Monmouth in around the 1130s, um, and a translation was done of those texts into Old Norse probably around uh, the year 1200. The Prophetiae Merlini become Merlinuspau, which means the prophecy of Merlin, uh, and, and that uh, is found within the larger work, which was the translation of the whole Historia Regum Britanniae into a text that was called Bretasurga, which is uh, Old Norse for um, the sagas of the Britons. Now, about the manuscript, uh, the Old Norse poem, Merlinuspau, actually only appears in one of the two primary manuscripts of Bretasurga. Uh, that's the one called Hoikspok. Um, although the other primary uh, branch of manuscripts uh, do refer to it. They say, at the, at the point where it appears in the text, they say, many people also know that poem, like as, as if it's so well known that I won't record it here. So it's thought that, it's, it's thought that just like Geoffrey's Prophetiae Merlini, the poem was very well known. Um, so like I said, the poem itself, it only appears in the one manuscript. That's the early 14th century Hoikspoke. Um, and that's a huge codex with a very uh, wide encyclopedic scope. So it includes Eddic texts and family sagas, but also mathematical, historical, theological, um, philosophical material. And the version of the Bretasurga that's found in that manuscript fits with that serious encyclopedic approach, sort of like a, a, a compendium of data, because its version of um, Bretasurga is uh, quite a stark, uh, bare-bones, details version of, uh, of, of Jeffrey's text. Rather than a literary version or a storytelling version. Yeah, yeah. So it, 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 in many ways, it's quite faithful to Jeffrey, but in some cases, it pairs down excess detail. Um, and in that, it's very different to the other branch of Bretasurga, the, the other old Norse version of, of the Historia, which is um, uh, primarily represented by the manuscript AM573 Quarto. And that adds lots of Romance-style embellishment to Geoffrey's text. We, we also know the, the name of the translator of Merlinusbau, which is actually very rare in, uh, in Old Norse. So not, not only do we know the name of the person who owned that manuscript, Hoikspok, it's called Hoikspok after a man named Hoiker Erlenson, 
um, but we also know the name of the translator. So it's it's one it's a, it's an old Norse text for which we have a lot of information. The Melinuspa was translated by a monk called Gunnlaugur Leifsson, um, who was a monk at uh, the Benedictine monastery of uh, Thingeira Cloister. And he died around 1219. And so if he did write Merlinuspau, as the, the text claims, that gives, right. that gives us a last possible date for the, the, comp- the, comp- the composition of it. So it was, it was, Merlinuspau was probably written sometime in the early 13th century, probably around 1200. And so I've been calling it Icelandic. I know that's wrong because it's really old Norse. Can you talk a bit about the differences? And was this... Is this found in Iceland or is it, was it found in Norway? Or I mean, they were originally once the same language. Can we talk a bit about when they split or, or are they still the same? Old Norse is uh, the term that we use for the language. That's the language that was spoken and written in Scandinavia and its outposts from about 800 to about 1400. Okay. Um, so that's the name that we give the language, and that was spoken in in Norway, uh, the rest of continental Scandinavia, and Iceland and Greenland. Um, but we we also use the term Old Norse Icelandic literature with a hyphen between Norse and Icelandic, uh, and uh, and that term is used to describe the whole literary corpus that is preserved in Old Norse. And the reason that we append Icelandic to the term is to sort of uh, recognize. Uh, that the vast majority of texts, if they weren't written in Iceland, they're only preserved in Icelandic manuscripts. And indeed, right. and indeed much of Old Norse literature is composed in Iceland or by Icelanders. Uh, and so we, we, call the whole lingu- we call the whole literary corpus Old Norse Icelandic. So where, is, where was this monastery? Was it in Iceland? Yeah, yeah. So yes, sorry. Um, the the text is it was probably written in Iceland at this moment. That that monastery is indeed in North Iceland. I drove very close to it on a on a road trip around Iceland just a few months ago. Um, now you met you you also asked about about when the different languages uh, diverged. Everyone in Norway and Iceland spoke something like a common Old Norse language until around fourteen hundred, um, and then we get divergences. So all the rest of the continental Scandinavian languages break away and become Norwegian, Swedish, Danish, um, and Icelandic uh, uh, actually keeps to Old Norse uh, much more closely. So um, that's actually one of the most, in- that's one of the most fascinating things about studying Old Norse is that the language itself, it almost has a body of living speakers because uh, Old Norse is so close to modern Icelandic. Modern Icelandic uh, didn't really diverge in very many meaningful ways from Old Norse. And so children in Iceland with a, a little bit of training can read the, the, the sagas in the original. Um, maybe not children, you know, but high, high, yeah, exactly high school age children. Like the, the the amount of difficulty that English children have with Shakespeare is similar right. to the amount of difficulty that Icelandic children have with with the sagas. Cool. Yeah. We're going to talk more about the Merlino Spau in a minute, but can you give us the context? Was there much Arthurian literature? going around before um, this translation of Geoffrey of Monmouth, or was this the first kind of Arthurian inroads into Iceland and Norway? Yeah, so in Old Norse, uh, the Melinuspau, if it was written around the year 1200, is uh, probably the first piece of Arthurian literature um, to be translated into Old Norse, or at least that we have evidence of. And if Bretasurga was uh, translated along with it, 
uh, by Gunnleuger or one of his contemporaries, Bretterserger and Malinusbau would represent the very first Arthurian material to be translated into Old Norse. So like I said, that was around the year 1200. Um, But a bigger influx of Arthurian material actually happens in Norway at the court of uh, Haukonason. Uh, He reigned from uh, 1217 to 1263. Uh, And at his court, there was a big translation project. So um, his his reign follows a period of strife and upheaval. But during his own reign, uh, there was more peace and prosperity. So that allowed him to pursue... um, to, to focus on courtly and uh, uh, cultural refinement in his court. Uh, and one of the big parts of this uh, project of refinement was a translation project. Um, he, he wanted to have uh, the courtly literature that was being read at English and French courts translated into Norse. Uh, so this is primarily Francophone literature, Arthurian literature and, and, and other romance literature. And so there are a number of texts that we know were translated at Haukon's court, which are Arthurian. That's Even's saga, which is a translation of Yvain. Um, Myrtle's saga, which is a translation of Le du Court Mantel. Um, the the Strenglekar uh, compilation, which is a compilation of lays, with many of which are the lays of um, Marie de France, um, and, the, and uh, th- that includes some Arthurian lays. And other Arthurian texts that might have been translated there are Parsifal saga and Eric's saga. Uh, so this was a bit. This was a big translation project, and it wasn't only Arthurian literature that was being translated either. Other romances, Chanson de Geste, were, were translated during this time, and so it was a big influx of foreign literature into the Norwegian court, and this had a lot of influence. I, obviously, the, the, it's thought by scholars that the idea behind the translation project was to influence the court um, in an ideological sense, to try and inf- import uh, chivalric values and issue uh, uh, knowledge of courtly love and those kinds of traditions into Norway, um, which at the time seems to have had a reputation for being a bit savage, a bit barbarous. Um, <laughs> and so the, that, whether or not that's true, Haukon certainly seems to have been trying to import this literature to try and bring uh, an air of civility and civilization to his court. Um, And it certainly has an effect, uh, whether or not it it, it brought this ideological change, it certainly brought uh, a literary influence. So it it, it brings romance to Old Norse and and Old Norse Icelandic and has a stylistic influence and an influence in terms of content on the romance tradition that then blossoms in uh, in Iceland. It's it's important it's it's very important to mention though at this point that with the exception of the Arthurian texts that are in the Strenglekar composition, none of these Arthurian texts are extant in Norwegian manuscripts. So even though we think that they were translated at the court of Haukon, uh, and some of them actually claim to have been translated there explicitly in their introductions, they only exist in Icelandic manuscripts and often from several centuries later. Huh. I want to focus in on the Merlinusbau. Um, so let's talk about that text um, specifically. So it's it's from Geoffrey of Monmouth. How is it different or what things do, do they keep the same as the kind of embedded prophecies of the history of the King of Britain? And what changes does the translator make? So... It, it it serves the same function in the text. So the, the, the function that Prophetiae Merlini serves in Historia Regum Britanniae is the same pl- like narrative and plot function that the Merlinusbau play in Bretterserge. Uh, so the, if, perhaps for those listeners who don't know, this happens in the text when 
um, Vortigern, who is a king of the Britons, has invited Anglo-Saxons over uh, to, to Britain to help him fight the Picts. But they turn against him and he tries to, he tries to build a stronghold on a mountain. Uh, but every day the bricks that are laid in, in the fortress that he's making disappear overnight. And he doesn't know what's going on, so he consults his uh, scholars and magicians. And they tell him to find uh, a, a boy who doesn't have a father. Uh, and if they kill that boy, they'll sprinkle his blood on the foundations and that will make them stay. Uh, they find Merlin, the character of Merlin, and um, this is uh, his, in Geoffrey's text, it's the first appearance of Merlin as, as he is in later Arthurian tradition as a, as a sorcerer who is connected to Arthur. Right. Um, they find Merlin, he, his father was apparently an incubus, and so he doesn't have a father. So they are going to kill him and sprinkle his blood on the stones. But Merlin says, no, that's ridiculous. Uh, I'll tell you what's going on. I'll tell you why the, 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 um, why the stones are disappearing. It's because if you take the top off the mountain, there'll be a lake underneath it. And if you drain the lake, you'll find dragons down there. And I can even tell you what it means. And then he speaks a prophecy in which he talks about how uh, the, the, the two dragons symbolize the Britons and the Anglo-Saxons. And it prophesies, it prophesies the uh, Anglo-Saxon defeat of the Britons. It also prophesies the rise of King Arthur. Uh, and, um, and, and, and obviously because it was written by Geoffrey in 1130, he can also prophesy many other things that, right. uh, that did happen. Uh, like the Norman invasion um, and, and things like that. And so that, that's the role that it plays in the text. But uh, Gunnlaugr Leifsson, the uh, Icelandic translator, um, changed it in many different ways. Um, as you will see from the translation that I've done, perhaps the most immediate change is that he took the uh, Prophetiae Merlini, which is a text that's in Latin prose, and he doesn't just translate it into Old Norse, he also converts it into verse. Interesting. So it, why did he do that? Well, it's a very, it, it is a very interesting question. Um, and and um, one of the reasons it's interesting is because Old Norse translations of foreign texts almost never do that. They almost never translate into verse. In fact, uh, all of the foreign romances that I was talking about that were translated at the court of Haukon, um, they go the other way around. They take French romances that were originally in verse and they convert them into prose. Yeah, that's that's usually the way with translation because it's an added layer of difficulty if you're trying to match the poetry. So most basic yeah. translations are in prose. Yeah, and it's especially true in Old Norse, the reason being that um, Old Norse does have some uh, verse forms of its own, skaldic and eddic verse forms, but they're very dense uh, and um, sort of cryptic and not very well suited to long narrative forms. But Norse does have an unusually well-developed tradition of composing lengthy prose narratives at this point in history. So this is also very unique about Old Norse, where most uh, medieval European literatures are composed in verse. Old Norse has this tradition that's already flourishing of prose epic, um, which is, you know, most obvious in the Icelandic sagas. And so when these translators took the romances from the French, it was a very obvious choice to just turn the verse into prose for the reasons you suggested and then for these particular reasons about Old Norse. But Merlinusbau is unique in going in the absolute opposite direction, going from huh. Latin prose to Old Norse verse. And the reason for this might be that there was a tradition of very cryptic, dense prophecy poetry in Old Norse 
of which um, Verlusbau is probably the most famous example. That's one of the poems from the Edda. Uh, and Verlusbau, that just means the prophecy of the uh, vulva, which means the prophecy of the seeress. And Merlinusbau, you might see that the names are similar. Merlinusbau just means the prophecy of um, Merlin. Um, and so there was this tradition where cryptic prophecy poems were written in verse in Old Norse. So maybe Gunnlaugur Leifsson saw the opportunity to emulate the older prophecy poems that were in Old Norse with his Merlinusbau. Uh, and in fact, this, this attempt to emulate might be um, more deliberate than, than you might initially think. He, he wrote the Merlinusbau in a, in a verse form that's called Fornirthislag, which means old story meter. And that's a common meter in Eddic poetry, and it's also used in Verlusbau. And as you will see from my notes in the translation that I've done, Gunnlaugur seems to have used Verlusbau as a quite deliberate model for Merlinusbau in some places. So there are certain sections of, of Merlinusbau which contain uh, exact terms and collocations that are from very small sections of Verlusbau. Um, Interesting. Yeah, so it's possible that he's emulating that poem. So that, that that could be the reason that he puts it in verse rather than in prose. It's to sort of give it the feeling of one of these old Norse um, pre... Not, he's not necessarily giving it the feeling of one of the pre-Christian poems, but all of these old prophecy poems like Verlusbau, they might have been written before Christianization. They might be from before the year 1000. And Gun right. Gunnleger is sort of trying to make his Merlinusbau seem like one of those old uh, Norse prophecy poems in its form. Um, Interesting. And, and uh, he, he also changes it in a number of other ways to, to, to sort of increase this effect, to make it resemble traditional old Norse verse. Uh, these are also noted in the translation that I've done. One of them, he, he puts lots of kennings in it. Good. And can you talk about what kennings? Because uh, if people who've taken old English know what kennings are, but I don't think... They do survive into modern poetry, but we don't talk about them. Yeah, I think Auden uses them, and some other poems, some other poets use it quite deliberately. But yeah, it's it, they the kennings do exist in Old English, although not nearly as many and not nearly as fun. Like the kenning is really an Old Norse um, device, which appears a little bit in in Old English too. Um, but basically, uh, the, the probably the easiest way to describe it is that a kenning is like a miniature riddle, which contains. Um, 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 one main noun, which is metaphorically related to the thing that you're trying to describe, and then another noun that's in the possessive or the genitive case, which gives a clue to what the sphere is that the, that, that the thing you're trying to, to re refer to is. So the best way to describe it is using an example. Uh, so the first kenning in my translation of uh, Melinuspau is storm of spears. Uh, and so in order to break down the riddle, you have to look at it. So the main noun is storm. Um, and so storm is metaphorically anything that is uh, blustery or chaotic. There's things falling from the sky. And then the of spears part gives you that uh, clue as to what the sphere is, that the, that, the, that the referent is. So the storm of spears is like the chaotic thing of spears. Therefore, the storm of spears is war. Right. Or battle. Or battle, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, it usually works like that, where the, you, you use the genitive one to give you a clue as to what sphere the referent is in, and you use the uh, the main noun to 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 find out what, what what exact part of that sphere is being referred to. 
Uh, oh, that's that's so neat. I've never heard it described in that way. Like Storm of Spears is an old English kenning as well. Yeah, yeah, yes. It's a, it's, but I didn't. I've never heard the kenning broken down that way. Yeah, so Storm of Spears is a very common one. It's a very it's a very easy one to use to explain. But uh, as you will see, the, the translation of Molinus Bow that I've I, I've done. It contains a great many kennings, and the notes that I've done to the translation also try to explain to people who might not be familiar with kennings exactly how the riddling quality works. So let's look at a couple of particular ones. When he's talking about the dragons, you translate that as worms, which is a word in English for dragon as well. Yeah. But they're called, um, this is in your um, verse 12. Mm -hmm. um, so asleep in the dark, deeper below, in caverns twain, two worms reside. These earth girdles are utterly dissimilar. Ropes of the land, one red, one white. So the kennings would be earth girdles and land ropes, right? Ropes yeah. of the land. Yeah, that's right. And so why do those, why are those kennings for dragons? Yeah, well, this is, a, I'm glad you raised this point because not all Old Norse kennings just require you to examine the riddle from a logical perspective. Sometimes they also require cultural information. So if you just take one of those, um, one of those two that you mentioned, uh, they're quite similar, aren't they? Girdles of the earth and ropes of the land. If you just take ropes of the land, for example, uh, rope would be your main noun, and you can imagine that a rope is a reasonable metaphor for a snake because it's long, right? Sure. Um, but then this, the, the, the genitival noun here of land is more confusing because um, it doesn't really give a clue to what sphere the referent is in. It doesn't give the same kind of clue that of spears does. If, if, if the kenning contains the genitival noun of spears you know it's going to be something about battle something about war but of land doesn't really tell you uh it doesn't really tell you that this is going to be a particular type of rope that's like a snake it, it, it doesn't give you that clue unless you have the cultural background um and that's also very common in old norse so uh, one of the great monsters in old norse mythology is the midgard's armor or the um the midgard serpent or Midgard worm, um, and this is a, a, a monster that encircles the earth uh, and sort of holds the land together. Um, and um, and so, if you know that myth that the that the Midgard worm is a serpent that is encircling the land, the fact that if you have a kenning that's rope of the land, you therefore know, oh, I see, that's an allusion to the Midgard's armor, the rope that's holding the land together. Therefore, that the answer to that kenning is snake or serpent or, or dragon. Right. Oh, that's fascinating. And, and earth girdle would be the same, that it's a belt that goes around the earth and yes. therefore it's the... Yeah, yeah exactly. That... I think I think it's called an Ouroboros, is that right? Where, yes. Where the, 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 <laughs> the snake is eating its own tail. And the Midgarzorma is one of those, a snake that is holding the land together but like a rope. Therefore, earth girdle, land rope. And it, it, because this poem is, it mentions snakes a lot, it uses a lot of these kennings that are quite similar. Uh, girdles of the earth, sashes of the ground, I've translated it. Um, and they all just mean snake. As long as you have that cultural information, you can solve the riddle. Right. But without that kind of particularly Norse, like I don't think they would have that kenning in Old English because they don't have, I mean, Christianity came much earlier to England. And so all the texts we have from old English are explicitly Christian and they would have lost if they ever had those pagan cultural references. Yeah, that's a very good point because I mean, there's no reason to 
presume that the old English myths, the, 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 the pagan Anglo-Saxon myths, didn't include a similar figure. We know that uh, Anglo-Saxon paganism and Norse paganism did have some features in common. So it's, yeah. it's very possible that, in, that, that the original Anglo-Saxons, before they were pre-Christian, sorry, before they were Christianized, um, they they might have they might have been able to understand that kenning too but as you say old english uh includes much less information about paganism than old norse does cool so do you want to talk about some other kennings that you had particular fun with the the final addition to the uh, to the story of old norse kennings is not only are they uh, sometimes riddles that can be solved logically? Not only are they riddles that sometimes require cultural information, but sometimes they are riddles that have more than one genitival noun uh, in them, which which means that you have to sort of work backwards through the riddle and solve it. Here is an example of of one of those uh, kennings which contain more than uh, more than two components. The whole stanza goes: more could be made known to people from the stanzas of that stave of folk. Yet I must mention no more to the furs of the forum of Throtter. Um, now that, that last kenning, the furs of the forum of Throtter, as you can see, it's not just the something of something, it's the something of something of someone. So uh, kennings can have this sort of infinite length, but you know, so some of them are quite long. Uh, you don't usually get more than three or four, but. It, Theoretically, you could have a kenning that went on indefinitely because you can keep adding genitival nouns to it. So when you have a, a kenning like this, you have to work backwards through it. So you have the fir trees of the forum of Throtter. Uh, you need to start with Throtter. So Throtter is another name for Odin, who is a god of various things, but he's the god of war. So then you, can, then you can solve the first sort of mini kenning within this kenning, which is the forum of Throtter. So the meeting or the forum or the parliament of Throtter, that must be a battle uh, because he's the god of war. So a meeting of the god of war must be a battle. And then you can solve the whole thing then because you can say, what are the fir trees of battle? Uh, now, in Old Norse, uh, people, the, a common uh, metaphor for a person is a tree, um, which might be for logical reasons, because you can imagine that a tree is tall and thin and, and stands up. Sometimes it stands alone, sometimes it stands in groups, and the same can be said of a person. It might also be uh, also drawing on some cultural knowledge, because in the uh, mythology, supposedly humans were made from two pieces of wood. Uh, oh, interesting. Okay. So the fir trees of the meeting of the god of war must be... Uh, warriors, because they are the they are the people of war. So that's that's probably the the, the the last thing that can be said about how he adds kennings to it. But there there is another thing that Gunnlaugur does to to, to his Merlinusbau to make it extra Norse, uh, and that is that he includes uh, cultural references. So in in our discussion about kennings, the Midgardsormer is one of those. Uh, he, 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 that's already included in that kenning. It's it's a it's a reference from the old lore of Old Norse that he puts into his poem, which is supposedly a Christian prophecy. Um, and it, and yeah, I mean, Geoffrey wouldn't know anything about you know Fenrir or Throtter or the the Old Norse mythology. No, exactly. And so and so Gunnlaugur puts in these references, not just Throtter, which is Odin, and not just the Midgar's armor, which is this. Uh, mythological snake he calls blacksmiths uh verlanders and verlander is a, a mythological blacksmith and so they're using and in old english he's known as wayland 
Um, right. And so Gundlaugr is using the uh, mythological reference Verlander to signify all blacksmiths, but at the same time, he's putting in an allusion to Old Norse lore, which can, contributes to this effect that it's really this uh, ancient Old Norse poem. And you, you mentioned uh, Fenrir too. Jeffrey wouldn't have known about Fenrir. Fenrir is a mythological wolf. And so instead of just saying the word wolf, Gunnlaugr says Fenrir, who is another, that's another monster from the Old Norse mythology, a, a big monstrous wolf. And so not only is Gunnlaugr making his poem more literary by using an illusion, he is, it, it's more than just that. He, he's making it seem like a, an old, old Norse poem by adding these references. So Right. And it's, it's like, it would be inexplicable to someone who wasn't brought up in that tradition. So he's translating it not just um, linguistically, but culturally and making it really seem like it is, I mean, I, I guess you just said this, but that it's that it's kind of a native poem yeah. rather than um, an import. Yeah, if, if he's trying to emulate Verlusbau, he does very well. It seems like a, a, a prophecy poem that could be in the Edda on its own, but it's it's actually a translation of this Christian prophecy from a, a Latin prose text. So I, th I think he's done a reasonable job. Uh, That's really fascinating because... We're talking in the course about how many, how Arthur is appropriated for nationalist purposes, and mm -hmm. and it seems like that even if you don't have that kind of historical connection to England and and Arthurian stuff, you can still appropriate it for your own country and your own um, nationalist. I mean, I know that nations didn't really exist back then, but but your own national and cultural and linguistic. Uh, purposes. Yeah, that's right. And um, outside of the context of the mini text, Merlinusbau, in the Bretasurge, whoever translated it, whether it was Gunnlaugr or one of his contemporaries, they also uh, play up the, the, the Scandinavian uh, references, the, the, the idea that Arthur also ruled in uh, various parts of continental Scandinavia. And in fact, this is also evident in, in the translation. References to Denmark are, are, are made deliberately to sort of bring the, uh, the idea of Arthur into Scandinavia. Like he wasn't just this king in Britain. He also has a connection to, to Scandinavia too. So yeah, it's definitely trying to rope Arthur in to the, 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 the broader uh, old Norse Icelandic worldview. Yeah, his rule will grow through green pastures and diverse islands of distant seas. Ireland, England, the Isles of Scotland, wide territories of Welsh people, Norway's coastline and southern Denmark, and Romans will react with fear. So, I mean, there is this tradition of Arthur conquering all of Europe, but he's highlighting the Scandinavian parts, I think. Yeah, and there is, there is there's another interesting aspect to this. In the larger text of the Bretasurga, uh, the translator chooses not to say that Arthur was king over Iceland, even though in Geoffrey's text, Geoffrey of Monmouth says he was king of Iceland, which, oh, is, wild. which is quite interesting. And that's, I mean, if you talk about trying to trying to make Arthur service your own nationalist worldview, this, this is a pretty clear example of that, because, of course, um, there was a time when Iceland was an independent commonwealth, um, yeah, and with no king. Yeah, no king, and they had the, they just had the parliament, and, and, and it had this self rule. And so the idea that a, a, an Icelandic translator might suggest Arthur conquered various parts of Scandinavia and various parts of, of of Europe as well, but he never conquered Iceland, might be you know sort of a 
uh, a little um, uh, nationalist sentiment to say we Icelanders were an independent people. You know? <laughs> uh, and of course, when Gunnlaugur wrote this, it was still during the um, the Commonwealth period. Uh, Iceland had not yet ceded power to Norway. That happened in, in, in the 1260s. And so if this poem was written in, in t- around 1200, Gunnlaugur is saying, yeah, there are these other places where Arthur conquered, but in fact, he didn't conquer us here. Oh, isn't that fascinating? So they want to appropriate Arthur, but yeah. still not have them conquer them. Yeah, it's be- you can tell you can tell your audience that he conquered Denmark and Norway, but don't say he ever conquered Iceland. <laughs> that's that's really subtle. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, isn't that interesting? And um, just going back a bit to the poetry. So this isn't rhyming poetry. It's got these kennings, which are a key part, but it's also alliterative. So that's an older English poetic and and obviously Icelandic and, and Norse and so on poetic form where the first letters of, you know, the stresses of a line alliterate. You um, are translating this. It's it's a, a prose Latin text that was translated into Old Norse and in poetry. And so one of the things that um, you have kept, I think, very well in your translation is that essence, you know, that sense of the poetry um, because translating Jeffrey Monmouth back into prose, he would lose all of those features that are unique about the the Merlino Spau, um, particularly, and all of the Icelandic and Norse features. And but can you talk a bit about that process and about any problems that you encountered translating it into modern English? Yeah. So um, the, the Merlino Spau is written in this four near this lag meter, which is a, an alliterative meter. So it, rather than relying on rhyme, it relies on the alliteration of certain stressed syllables in particular cases, in, in particular places in the verse. So um, it, this, is quite a, this is quite a simple, not simple, obviously it's, it's uh, no, writing no poetry is simple, but this <laughs> it is easier to do in Old Norse because the primary stress falls on the first syllable of words generally. So you can get very punchy lines out of it. So I'll just read a little bit from, um, this is from Molinus Bau 1, stanza 23, uh, which is Mun Kristni Kirkjur Fatla, Saus Harmer Höfugur, Her S. Ilandi. And so you can see there that because the first syllable of the words is stressed, it allows it to be particularly punchy, where you have to have a, a, an alliterating syllable in the first uh, stressed syllable of the second line. That's Kirkjur Fatla. Her Essilandi, you get this uh, definite punchiness to the K sound and the H sound because it's it, it's able to be uh, the, the not not just the first stressed syllable of that line but the first syllable of that half line altogether. Uh, and in Old Norse, that is achievable for two reasons. So it's um, it's an inflected language like Old English and Latin and modern German. So the functions of words are changed based on inflections. And these are usually suffixed to the word, so they don't impact the pattern of alliteration. Okay. Um, as opposed to as opposed to English, which usually uses prepositions and, and so on to, yeah. to give the grammatical sense of the sentence. Exactly, exactly. So in English, you need to rely on lots of little words to supply the function. And often they come before the noun. Hmm. We're talking about prepositions, conjunctions, articles, etc. So if we just look at another line of the old Norse. This is from Merlinus Bau 2, stanza 62. Ek mun tho thegi fleira throttar things thotlum seia. You can see in the last line there, throttar things thotlum seia. 
it needs an alliterating syllable that begins with thorn, this th sound. But because you can add the grammatical meaning to the word uh, by suffixing it with this um, you can keep the thotlum, the, the the harsh thot as the first syllable there. But in my English translation, I couldn't manage that. My English translation is, yet I can convey no more to the furs of the forum of Throtter. So because I have to rely on these little words of the forum, of Throtter, it doesn't have the same punchiness of, of, of the Old Norse. Um, okay. and, and like in English, we do have a suffixed inflection for the genitive, but it doesn't work as easily as it does for us as it does in Old Norse. So you could have that line as to the furs, forums, throcters. That's like a literal translation. Um, right. But the apostrophe S becomes really confusing. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to us because we, we rely on these little words. And so you, it's very difficult to make sure that your punchy first syllable uh, is, the, is, is the first syllable of that second half line. So me having to rely on little... Uh, circumlocutions like of the forum of Throcter, it does take away from the, uh, the, the punchiness of the original. Um, right. And, and the, the, the other thing that's difficult is that in Old Norse, like I said, the stressed syllable is always on the first syllable of a word. So as, right. long, as long as the word starts with that alliterating letter, you're good. But that's not, uh, that's not the case in English. We don't always uh, uh, stress the first syllable. Uh, an example of this from my translation is in um, part one, stanza 26. My, when I first translated it, I wrote, and the Romans will react with fear, um, which where I've tried to alliterate Romans with react. But when you actually read it through, you realize that when we say the word react, our emphasis isn't on that re, it's on the act part of that word. Right. And so we, if you have the line, the and the Romans will, react with fear you actually haven't alliterated because the, the, your first stress syllable in that second half line is the act so that was the old translation I've, I've i've since modified that to say and romans will reel in terror so you have to choose english words uh where the stress falls on the first syllable to get that effect oh interesting uh, and uh, finally another reason why it's easier to, to to write alliterative verse in old norse is that that inflectional nature it doesn't just mean that um you don't have those little words all around the place it means that you can mess around with the word order it allows uh, the icelandic poet to put their uh alliterating syllables exactly where they need them to be right um, and so if you'd like, uh, you, I, I, can, I can read a, a, se a sentence that sort of shows this. In Old Norse, it's Lautgrundgrava gera skorninga sagvi merlinus menja daily veitith vatni og vitith sidan kvat spauthavi spitlir boiga that es nilunda neither or fjatli. And I think... Uh, that that stanza it gives you a good idea of how the alliterative form works, but also all the words are messed around. So in this in the second half of that stanza, we get drain the water and know afterwards what foretold has breaker of rings. That is a novelty down from the fell. And that, <laughs> so that's the that's the exact translation of of of, of, uh, of the verse if we just translate it word for word. And so it's all messed around. So I've had to manipulate it a little bit, drain the water down from the fell and discover then what the destroyer of rings, that is a marvel, 
to men foretold. Foretold is the is the verb, and in English you need to put the destroyer of rings before it to make it make sense. So this is a great poem, and I'm really um, I was fascinated before, but I'm even more fascinated after this conversation with you. And so, can you make a pitch for all Arthurian courses to have it on their course as a must study text alongside Geoffrey of Monmouth or Chrétien de Troyes or something? Yeah, well, you're right that it is very seldom taught. And I think that's because, just like Geoffrey's original, um, Merlinus, a lot of it is just one cryptic line after another. Right. You know, the, so the, you can't the, make sense of it. No. And the section that I've chosen to translate for you is a, is a little more coherent because it tells the story part about the fortress and the lake and the dragons. But many of the stanzas that I've left out, it's just a load of cryptic, apocalyptic animal imagery. And it doesn't have a, a nice, clear plot for students to follow. It's certainly valuable for students of Old Norse in general because it shows the persistence of uh, the Eddic poetry in the culture of medieval Iceland that even a 13th century Christian monk is so familiar with and interested in the prophecy poems of the Edda that he chooses to emulate it in his supposedly Christian prophecy poem. You know, and the, right. the, 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 so those poems are possibly pre-Christian in, in composition. And in terms of the study of Arthur, I think it's also very valuable because it shows how Arthuriana is converted not only to the language uh, of the source, re of, the, of the target region, but also to the culture and literary traditions of those other societies. I'm not aware of any other Arthurian text that has been acculturated so much into its target context uh, with all these kennings and, and references to Verlander and Fenrir and all that kind of thing. Although I understand that your book has other other good examples i think you mentioned a hebrew text in which yeah. They all, yeah so we will also be looking at a hebrew text that i mean part you know the grail story is so obviously christian but they managed to make that jewish as well um, right by by calling the grail um uh platter that is used in uh jewish celebration and so they don't even mention you know the cup of Jesus's blood because the grail itself um, is definitely made Jewish but I but I think they're they're few and far between and I and I really like this uh, version of um, you know Arthuriana as you say it's it's so old Norse and Icelandic and not at all Latin or or even English. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it sounds like you have found a lot of examples that do a similar thing where they take Arthur and they really acculturate it into another uh, another context. So that that's that that is the the thing that I would say to scholars teaching Arthur about Merlinusbau is that it's it's a good way to introduce your students to Old Norse, but it's it's also a really good example of that kind of acculturation of the Arthur material. Good. Well, thank you very much for this conversation. It's, it's been so much fun and I've learned a lot from you, as I always do. But um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you today. Yes, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and I hope I was helpful, if, if, if rambly. <laughs> Everyone, the, the whole point of this podcast is to be rambly. Right. Well, then I, I'm sure I succeeded in that regard. <laughs> thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Have a good day. You've been listening to Eavesdropping on Arthurians with Kathy Causey. Join me next time to eavesdrop on another chat about a different but equally fascinating story about Arthur. Our music is Mordred's Lullaby by Heather Dale. You can download it for free from heatherdale.com.